So back in March, there was an article that I read by a thinker and a writer named Andy Crouch. The article was entitled, Leading Beyond the Blizzard. And Crouch, at the very beginning of the global pandemic, was trying to help Christian thinkers and leaders evaluate what's in front of us relative to this pandemic and to try and think through how do we navigate this season, a season that none of us have really had to navigate before. He talked in metaphors, and he described that what's upon us could be thought of as a blizzard or winter or an ice age. And what he suggested was to try and think through how you would lead through a blizzard, through a winter, and through an ice age. And when he said that, first of all, I was like, man, I hope this isn't an ice age. But it also reminded me of what it was like to pastor in Western Michigan during a blizzard and during a long winter. Like in Western Michigan, we had long winters. Like it felt like we didn't see the sun from November to like April 1st. We actually had times that Easter, everyone was dressed up in their nice Easter you know, dresses and there was like four inches of snow on the ground. It was super depressing. But one of the things that happened in the long winter in Western Michigan is that people began to get really sad and then they got mad and that was really bad. It really was, in church especially. Like, we tried to never vote on anything in February. Some of you have heard me tell this before, because people were so dark, they were so depressed, they were so just downcast, that for real, if we had said like, is Jesus Lord, yes or no? People would have said no, because they're just so upset. And so when I think of what it means to lead through a winter, I understand what that means. Life can be hard, it can be challenging. Here's what Andy Crouch said. The bottom line is that even as we weather the current blizzard and convince others that a blizzard is upon us, all of us should be preparing for a winter in which countless aspects of our society are reconfigured. Even in the mild weeks, life will be radically different from what it was just a few weeks ago. You feel that, don't you? And even, and as with winter in the northern U.S., at any time, a storm could arise that brings life entirely to a halt. Part of the challenge is that just the moment that we're in is just hard. Do you feel it? Relationships are strained. We've gone from sad to mad to bad. Suspicion is in the air everywhere. And trust erodes really quickly. We're quick to take sides on all sorts of things. And that's one of the reasons why I thought a slow, verse-by-verse -verse walk to the book of James would be helpful right now. Because I know that I need this particular concept, and I would believe that you do as well. I need to know how to steadfastly and joyfully follow Jesus when life is really hard. And I'm so thankful that the Bible speaks into that kind of moment, specifically in the book of James. It addresses how do believers, when they're under a press of hardship or difficulty, how do they not just survive, but how do they actually thrive with a joyful, steadfast obedience? So we're in the book of James. If you look at the very beginning, chapter one and verse one, 
You'll note that James identifies himself as the author. That's why it's called the book of James. Now, in order to know um, something about the concepts that are in this book, you have to know a little bit about the story that's behind the book. James, in all likelihood, was the half-brother of Jesus. He pastored the church in Jerusalem. Now, just let those two realities sink in. Half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, and he also pastors the church that's in the capital of the Jewish nation. First, he's the half-brother. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had children. Mark 6 names them. Verse three, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, those were the boys. And John seven tells us that his family, his brothers, didn't believe in him as the Messiah during during his earthly ministry. But at some point in time, James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes convinced that this half-brother that he grew up with actually is the Messiah. And James apparently puts his faith in trust in Jesus as Lord, which is why when you look at verse one, it's so significant. Don't just miss these words as though they're just the introduction. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is confessing that he believes his half-brother was indeed God, the Messiah. What a statement, especially if you grew up with Jesus. James eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's interesting that after Peter is delivered from prison in Acts chapter 12, he tells the brothers and sisters to go tell James that he's been freed. When Paul was converted, Galatians chapter two tells us that Paul met with James and extended to him the right hand of fellowship. He validated Paul's conversion. Additionally, we find that when there was this conflict between Gentile converts and Jewish converts, and what do we do when Gentiles are coming to faith? Do they have to obey all the elements of the law, or what part of the law do they have to obey? And if you're a Jew and the law is really important, it created this really challenging conflict, and so they held what was called the Jerusalem Council. In Acts chapter 15, James was a primary leader in that. And when Paul sort of completed a missionary activity work in Acts chapter 21, he returned to Jerusalem to report to James what he had seen God doing in the Gentile world. So James was a player in terms of the religious scene within Christianity. According to church historians, he was called James the Just because of his deep commitment to obeying the Jewish law and his constancy in prayer. And he was martyred in 62 AD by the scribes and Pharisees for not renouncing Jesus as the Messiah. So just think of this, half-brother of Jesus, martyr, leader of the Jerusalem church. You can imagine the level of influence and his heart that he would have for particularly Jewish Christians, which is why when he says in verse one, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, there's a, a sense in which he's using language and a metaphor that would resonate with the people that his primary focus was upon, his aim was to help Jewish believers scattered all over the known world to know how they keep following Jesus faithfully, steadfastly, and joyfully when the press of life was upon them. 
So that's the background. Let me walk you through the text this morning. Three key questions we're going to answer. What, when, and why? What does James call them to do? When are they called to do it? And why should they do it? So what, when, and why? First, what? What does he call them to do? Here's what he calls them to do. Same thing he calls you and me to do today. It is this, to count it all joy. If you're in the room, say it aloud with me. Count it all joy. Say it again. Count it all joy. It's the single most important thing in this text today. You need to understand what it means to count it all joy. This is the first of many exhortations that James gives in this book. This book is filled with regular, frequent imperatives. One commentator, Doug Moose, says this, the book has a greater frequency of imperatives than any other New Testament book. James's purpose is clearly not so much to inform, but to command, to exhort, and to encourage. But James, like a good pastor, knows that on the one hand, he needs to command and exhort, but he also needs to do it in a way that people can receive it. And so he uses the phrase or terms brothers and sisters 14 times in this book. He speaks not as a prophet, but as a pastor. And he also uses illustrations when he knows that they have a problem with the tongue. Instead of just telling them, stop saying wicked things, he says, we put a bit in the horse's mouth and it controls us. Or you know what happens when you light a fire and the forest fire takes off. He, he uses real world illustrations and examples in order to get through the defensive grid of how people might think about really important topics. The book begins with these words, count it all joy. That word count has captivated me this week. The word count means this. It means to intentionally evaluate. It means to consider. There's a level of purpose, there's a level of reckoning where one is leaning into whatever it is that they're doing. So for instance, if, um, if you have a, a, a bunch of coins in a drawer and you wanna know how much money those coins are, because whatever reason, there's a coin shortage right now. I don't understand why that's the case, but it, it is, right? You go to stores and there's no coins. You find coins, you wanna know how many that you have. You could guess, I think that's about $6 and change. Or you could actually know exactly, but in order to know exactly, you need to do something, do something intentionally. You need to lay the coins out and begin to count them one by one by one by one. That's how you would actually be able to reckon how many coins and the amount that there is there. So the word indicates some level of purposefulness, which is why in other places in the New Testament, this was fascinating to me, the word translated here as count is also translated as the word lead, or guide, even as a noun form in terms of a person. So the idea is this, that I'm to do something intentionally, and what you're gonna see in a moment here is to do so in a way that's intentionally, that's often the opposite of the way I would normally go. Two verses, Philippians two and verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.15, do not regard him as an enemy, there's the word, but warn him as a brother. 
So just taking those two verses, and particularly Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, we see how this word works out. It is this, that the normal tendency and bias of human beings is to be filled with self-centeredness, to think we're better than other people, and to not in humility count people better, but to count ourselves as better. That's the normal bias of how we operate in life. And what Paul says in Philippians chapter two is in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, your tendency is to go this way, but because of what Jesus is and what he has done and what God calls you to be and do, you're gonna go the other way. So when the winds are going this way, you're gonna lean in, not lean away. You're gonna count people as more important than yourself, and pursue it with a level of intentionality. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3, because of the conflict, you might normally regard him as an enemy. You'd hardly need to do anything to regard him as an enemy. But Paul says uh, in that text, 2 Thessalonians 3, don't regard him as an enemy, but instead warn him as a brother. So to count means that I'm gonna intentionally set my mind and set my heart on what I know I ought to believe. Paul says, count it all joy. That means that my mind and heart needs to go a different direction than how it would normally go. Here's maybe an illustration to help you get this in your mind. You know when you see um, footage from like a Weather Channel reporter when they're on scene and a hurricane's coming inshore? And the winds are blowing, right? And, and as, they're, as, as the winds are coming, they're kind of leaning in and, and, and the wind is blowing at them. I'm not talking about that one particular video clip. You can find it where a reporter is doing that and there's actually no wind. In fact, there's some guys behind her just kind of walking like this. It looks kind of awkward. Like, wait a minute, what's going on there? I'm talking about legitimately the wind is blowing and they're trying to hold against it. And instead of standing straight, the winds would blow them backwards. They, they lean into the wind so that they can withstand it. That's the concept. James, from the very beginning, is saying this. The hurricane of trials are coming your direction. And if you just stand up straight and blow with it like everything else, you're going to be taken by it. But instead, you're to count. You're to lean into it and have a different kind of mindset. The reason that's so important is that as you try and make it another week following Jesus, your posture can't be just reactive and it can't be just static. Your posture needs to be one where I'm intentionally gonna lean in. While the world and its culture is going this way, I'm gonna lean this way. In particular, I had some conversations the last couple of weeks with some friends and just the state of evangelicalism, Christianity, East Coast, West Coast, North, South. It's happening everywhere. Challenges, hardships. And a friend of mine identified that there's this convergence of three particular issues right now. And I just want you to understand what's happening in our world and our culture. And that is that there's this convergence of, of theological issues, of cultural issues, and political issues. And they're all interwoven. And sometimes you don't know which one is, 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 is the leader on that particular thought process. And, and to be honest with you, we all kind of have a dial. Think of your dial. Theology or politics or culture, wherever you start. And the challenge is, depending upon what information you get a steady diet in, who you talk to, in some cases, what really ticks you off, depending on where you start in the conversation and where that dial is turned, it could be a completely different conversation. So if you start with theology, politics, and culture, it's a very different conversation than if you start with politics, culture, and theology. 
And as a result, in many cases, people are missing each other. Families are missing one another. People within the church are missing each other. And there's this wind that's blowing across our country that would just kind of push us this way. And instead, what I'm calling you to be, what I'm calling you to do is the kind of people who lean in, not lean away. Who lean in to be able to ask yourself, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? In fact, I found myself recently needing whatever time that I needed to wait before I responded via email or text or verbally, I have to almost triple the amount of time. And when I don't, then I gotta quadruple it because I'm so upset with myself. What, what James is saying here is there needs to be a way of thinking about what's going on that relates to counting. And I need to count in a way that's intentional. Now, he says we're to count it all joy. What is this? Joy, church, is much more than just happiness. It's more than just feeling emotionally positive. Although sometimes joy and feeling positive go hand in hand. Here's what biblical joy is. Biblical joy is this deep-seated, God-centered orientation of your soul that looks through hardship and says, this is not easy, but I know God's good. It's the kind of perspective that says, I know that you're for me, not against me. I know that behind these dark clouds is a beautiful, smiling, kind providence. It means that we agree with the Bible that hardship pre presents an opportunity for the genuineness of our faith to be on display, 1 Peter 1.7. I mean, this is like game time when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to embrace the fact that when God disciplines us, it's a sign of his love. One of the things that hardship does is it squeezes sinfulness out of us. I'm, I'm sure that over the last number of months, you can't believe the things coming out of your mouth. Or maybe you can't believe you said them out loud <laughs> because they've been there all the, all the time, right? And it's that God in his grace and in his kindness helps us to see what's inside because his goal, is, his aim is to make us like Jesus. And in that respect, Christianity was made for hardship. Dave Furman, an author, says this, we can fight for joy in our trials because God is working on our hearts, pruning us more into the image of Christ. It may feel like you're being chopped up, but the divine gardener is pruning you so that you bear more fruit in your life than you could ever ask for or imagine. The issue is whether or not we read a quote like that and say, yes, or whether or not we're like, yeah, I just want life to go back to normal. And that's the struggle, which is why James calls these believers to count, count it all joy. So that's what we're to do. Here's the second thing. When are we to do it? James says, in trials of various kinds. Isn't that so apropos for this moment? If it was just one thing, that would be great. But it's like seven things that are so hard right now. And next week, there's probably gonna be eight. Now, James is writing to a group of people who are facing various trials. He, he says to the 12 tribes, back in verse one, in the dispersion. So just so you know what was happening, there was some sort of persecution that happened after Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 11. And as a result, Christians were scattered all over the known world. Now positively, it caused the gospel to be spread, but negatively, it made their life really hard. Further, AD 45, a famine hits Israel. And people couldn't grow crops. There was, 
They were destitute. It's one of the reasons that Paul took an offering for them from the Gentile churches around the, country, around the world. And additionally, according to Dung Mu, a commentator in the book of James, he says that there is, at this time there was serious social, political, and religious turmoil. It was sort of a, a bubbling pot that was just waiting to erupt at any moment. And sure enough, in AD 66 to AD 70, there was war between Israel and Roman forces that eventually led to the destruction of the temple. James writes to a group of believers who were poor. They were being taken advantage of by the wealthy, according to chapter five, verses four to six. They were hauled in the court, according to verses two, in chapter two and verse six. They were scorned for their faith, according to chapter two and verse seven. And they were just trying to hang on to what they believed in chapter five, verses seven through 11. So I say all of that so you understand the kind of difficulty that they were dealing with. And it's just helpful for me to be reminded of the extent to which they were being troubled by what was happening because it helps to put my suffering, our suffering, in context. We're not praying for leaders who have been jailed. We're not praying because of some massive famine that has struck the United States. We have challenges, we have troubles, both in the nation, regionally, locally, even the context of our own body of believers. But the fact of the matter is that, I think one of the things that's been helpful to me just in studying this passage is it just reminds me that I need to get over my shock of how hard life is. I'm tending to spend too much energy being shocked about things. In fact, I read 1 Peter chapter four this week. It was really helpful. It says this, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> I read that text and I was just like, Lord, I, I'm just surprised how hard it is. And yet the reality is, why am I surprised? Here's what Spurgeon said. So if our afflictions tend by trying our faith to breed patience, and patience tends to make us into the perfect man in Jesus, then we may be glad of trials. Afflictions by God's grace make us all around men, developing every spiritual faculty, and therefore they are our friends our helpers, and should be welcomed with all joy. So I found myself this week after studying this text just having a little different emotional perspective when things are hard. In fact, very practically, there's sometimes, and this happens throughout the course of the year, but it's been happening specifically during this pandemic, that I'll just wake up in the morning and my first, and I've said this before, my first feeling is one of anxiousness. Like I wake up and I feel anxious and I don't know why. Part of it is because I may need some coffee. That may be one thing. The second thing is, is then I begin to think about what I should be anxious about and oh, I should be worried about something. And then I begin to think about what I ought to be worried about. And if I can't figure out what I should be worried about, that makes me even more anxious. And you know what I've just determined? That when anxiety greets me in the morning, I just recognize that it's there. Good morning, anxiety and I ignore it and move on to the rest of my day. I'm not surprised that it's there. Of course it's there. Why would I be surprised? Because life is filled with trial and therefore I don't spend any emotional anxiety uh, energy trying to figure out why I'm anxious. I just say, well, there it is, and I just move on. The fact of the matter is, is that some of us are spending so much energy because we are surprised at what is happening. Life is uncomfortable, trials come. And this text calls us to lean into those challenges with a mindset 
that's different than how we would normally respond. So what are we to do? We're to count it all joy. When are we to do it? In various kinds of trials. And why? Why should we do it? Here's why. Paul says, or rather James says, it produces steadfastness. Look at verse 3. Here it is. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is one of the reasons why gathering as a church is so important, one of the reasons why it's important for you to keep tuning in, and that is that Sunday mornings remind us what we know, but we forget Monday through Saturday. They remind us by singing, by hearing the word, by prayer. Oh yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. Because Monday you're like, it's not true. Tuesday, it's not true. By Saturday you're like, it's not or it's true. Then Sunday, it's true, it's true, it's true. And that's the cycle of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. The word test is the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter chapter 4. Testing validates that what we believe is real. You know that hardship demonstrates the kind of people that we really are. Can I just remind you, anybody can follow Jesus when you're, it's easy and you're on vacation. Anybody can follow Jesus when people are kind and nice, they're not snarky. It takes no extra maturity to be godly and to be righteous in that season. But when it's hard and things are difficult, that's when it really matters. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What is steadfastness? Steadfastness is perseverance. It's endurance. It's the ability to not give up. So how do you develop endurance? The only way you develop endurance is by enduring. How do you persevere? The only way that you persevere is by persevering. We bear up under trials and we learn how to not give up. Think of it like a weightlifter. You, you, you take a, a barbell and you lift it up, you curl it, hold it, and then you go down and then back up. But sometimes in order to build additional strength, as you're releasing the barbell, you hold it right here and you hold it. One, two, three, four. I'm shaking for drama purposes. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ah! And why do you hold it? Because in holding it, you're building additional capacity for future lifting. You don't build muscle merely by lifting, but by also by holding it, you end up facilitating greater strength. And that is what happens that in the middle of hardship and difficulty, you're just like, I'm gonna hold godliness. I'm gonna hold my tongue. I'm gonna hold on to humility. I'm gonna hold on to what it means to not give up in trusting Christ that he knows what I need. In the same way, we can rest knowing that it's not pointless when Jesus calls us to hold in the midst of the storm. Like the reporter leaning in against the hurricane waves and the, the wind that's howling, so too Christians in the midst of the wind that's blowing against us can lean into and count it all joy when we encounter various kinds of trials. So let me give you three words. Three concepts just to hang some truth on for you to pray into this week. Word number one is the word believe. Believe. Listen, 
Jesus is risen from the dead. He's on his throne. For those of you who are followers of his and have confessed your sins and turned to Christ, the Bible tells us that he is for you. He is not against you. If you're not yet a Christian, man, this would be a moment for you to realize life is really hard. And maybe God's using it as an opportunity to ask some really important questions of your own soul regarding what you believe. So believe, hold the belief that maybe the first thought of the day needs to be, here's what I believe, I know you're in control, I, I know all things are working out for my good, I know that you are for me and not against me, to believe. Second word is the word count. So believe, count, to intentionally remind your heart, no, this is what's true, this is what you believe, this is what you put your faith in, this is what you are to think about. Instead of allowing the winds of culture or other people to drive you, instead to say, this is what I'm going to consider, this is what I'm going to think about. Even to evaluate your diet in the theology, culture, political realm, and ask yourself, is my diet helping me to hold or is it just making me really weak? So believe, secondly count, and third rejoice. Which means that I can look at life through a lens of realizing of what God's purposes are and that one day, some way, this will all work out for his beautiful divine plan. For those of us who are a little older in life, we have more of a track record of God's faithfulness. And when I'm singing that song, all my life you've been faithful, all my life you've been so, so good, that's not theory. Like I got stories that over and over and over, when dark clouds came, it just was a matter of time until they parted and the goodness of God shone through. And as a result, I can rejoice. So trials are gonna come, Jesus is still on the throne, and by his grace, we can walk through difficulty with a steadfast, joyful obedience, and James is gonna help us do that. He's gonna help you do it today. Lord, help us right now to be the kind of people whose hearts and minds are stayed upon you. Lord, there are so many challenges, so many things that would woo us from the right kind of thinking. And so we pray that you would grant us grace even now to begin a reset. Lord, I pray for some who you're using this hardship to create a renewal, even a revival in them God, I pray that they would respond in, by your grace to your calling. God, forgive us for what we've been sinful. Forgive us for the ways in which we've not considered others more important than ourselves. God, help us to persevere all the way, all the way to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.